Hello and welcome to another episode of My Favorite Trees. My name is Thomas and I love trees. This episode we're talking about a really weird tree. At the risk of alienating some of my listeners, I'm going to give you a visual using a video game reference. In the open world adventure game Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild on the Nintendo Switch, there is a region known as the Thundra Plateau. This is the area that constantly has a thunderstorm going on until you complete a side quest there. But in this area, you find these weird tree things. Their trunks are like stone pillars that reach up into the sky, and their crown is like a green platform supported by an array of lightning-shaped branches. If you've played this game and know what I'm talking about, or even if you haven't and this visual seems ridiculous, you may be excited to learn that those trees are a real thing that exist in our world. This tree is known as the Dragon's Blood Tree, or the Socotra Dragon Tree. And while it may not be quite as tall as the ones in Hyrule, they still look absurd. And on top of their appearance, they actually bleed. These trees are only found on a single island belonging to Yemen called Socotra. And their biology alone is utterly fascinating. But there's more to them than just their structure. These dragon trees find themselves in a strange place in time. They reveal to us much about our world's mysterious past while simultaneously warning us about our future. There really is nothing like the Dragon's Blood Tree. For those who got my Breath of the Wild reference, you may be able to form a sort of picture of it in your mind. But for those of you out of the loop, let me describe it more in depth for you. We're looking at a tree growing to 30 to 60 feet, or 9 to 18 meters, so not massive, but certainly tall enough. Moving from base to crown, the first half to three quarters of the tree is just bare gray trunk. Absolutely no lateral branches like you see in most other trees. There is some variety in the amount of trunks. Oftentimes there's just one, sometimes it's multi-stemmed. But regardless, no branching until you get to the very top. So you follow the tree up, and at some point the trunk just decides to stop existing. From that point, the trunk splits into countless smaller branches that zig and zag like orange lightning bolts. So this gives us a crown of branches, but all concentrated right at the top. The leaves then come in just at the very ends of those lightning branches. Everything happens at the end of its previous segment, stacking one thing on top of the last. And because of this, you're ultimately left with a tree that looks like a flattened green platform on top of a pillar, or depending on how the crown shapes itself, it could bow upwards and make itself look kind of like an umbrella or big mushroom. I want to use that umbrella visual for you to put this all together, because physically, this tree is just so weird, it's hard to process. Picture an umbrella. You've got that handle, stalk thing that you hold onto. That's the trunk. At the top of that shaft, it splits into those spoke-like bits that protrude radially from the center. And I'm realizing that I maybe should have looked up umbrella anatomy before this, but I think you get the idea. Those spokes are the lightning-shaped support branches. Those spokes hold up the hood, which is the leafy crown of the tree. No other tree fits the anatomy of an umbrella so well. It is as literal of an analogy as I could come up with. 
Normally, leaves and branches kind of grow wherever they want and gives the tree a more random appearance. But this trunk leading up to the semicircle crown looks so smooth and clean. Let's take a closer look at the parts of our dragon's blood tree. The leaves are like long green blades. If you're familiar with the yucca, that desert plant that's basically a ball of green blades, that's what we're going for. In fact, the adolescent form of these trees just looks like yucca plants on top of skinny stems. Very awkward appearance, but with an obvious glow-up potential. This similar imagery is because the dragon tree is related to the yucca, but more on that in a minute. If you just have no idea what I'm talking about and my analogies just are not doing it for you today, picture a thick blade of grass. Then, just keep making it bigger in your head, to the point that it's a tree leaf size. That's what we got going on. This connection also makes sense because, believe it or not, these trees are closer in the relation to grasses than they are to the deciduous trees in North America and Europe. But like the deciduous trees that we are more familiar with, they reproduce with recognizable fruits and flowers. The flowers form in clusters called spikes, protrusions covered in small, whitish-yellow flowers. You know, like when people go on vacation to tropical islands and they get a flower in their hair? Not like the big hibiscus flower, but like the cluster of flowers. I really don't know why I'm going for so many analogies in this one, and I have no idea if they're resonating with anyone, but here we are. One incredible thing is how they're pollinated. We often see bees as primary pollinators, maybe also wind, and in the case of magnolias, we have beetles, which is very primitive and very cool. But researchers were studying relationships between the dragon tree and other species, and found that there were these shrubs that benefited from these trees that grew near them. These shrubs, in turn, created a habitat for these nocturnal Socotran lizards. And when they studied these lizards, they noticed dragon tree pollen all up in their noses, which tells us that these trees are very likely pollinated by nocturnal lizards. I don't know about y'all, but that is really cool. I love bees and all, but a tree that is pollinated by lizards is just so wild. Ultimately, when these flowers are pollinated, they can turn into fruits that hold the seeds in the future generations of these trees. Like how the flowers form in clusters, we also see these fruits form as clusters of small berries. Birds love them. That's probably the biggest way that these seeds are dispersed. I'm not totally sure if they're toxic to humans or not, which I feel like there would be definitive knowledge about it. Locals seem to have historically eaten them, but in unknown amounts, and modern science hasn't thoroughly investigated their whole anatomy. For a few reasons. One is that these trees only grow on a small island between Africa and the Arabian Peninsula. They aren't common. There's also political issues there that I'll get into later, but ultimately, it makes research tricky. Also, some aspects of a tree are largely ignored if there's some other aspect that captures more of an observer's attention. And there certainly is a characteristic that folks latch onto. Like I said, this tree bleeds. Kind of, but not literally. I'm talking about tree sap, something that's very normal and potentially ignored, unless the sap is very, very red. Various mythologies explain how this came to be. One story from India suggests that a dragon that was the manifestation of the god Brahma was battling an elephant that was the manifestation of the god Shiva. The dragon bit the elephant and killed it by drinking its blood, but the elephant then fell on the dragon and crushed it to death. 
The blood of these two creatures combined to make the resin that today flows from these trees. Similarly, Greek mythology tells of a hundred-headed dragon called Laden who guarded the Garden of Hesperides where legendary golden apples grew. When Laden was killed by the bow and arrows of Hercules, his blood sank into the earth and grew the first dragon trees. And as much as I love stories, there is a scientific explanation to this phenomenon. It's because of flavonoids, enzymes that provide the pigments that color various tree parts. It's because of flavonoids that we see deciduous leaves turn various hues of yellow, orange, and red in the fall. But regardless of why the sap is the way it is, humans love it and use it for a variety of purposes. The blood resin can be dried into solid chunks and then ground into a bright red powder. This has been used to make dyes, paints, cosmetics, wood varnish, incense, and more. Local peoples have also used it medicinally, though modern scientists question the extent of its effectiveness. In fact, there is another species of dragon's blood tree whose resin has shown signs of being an anticoagulant, which makes it harder for cuts to stop bleeding, and that's not good. This dried resin product is often referred to as cinnabar, in reference to the fire-red mineral ore of mercury sulfide with the same name. If any of you wanted another video game reference, there is a location in the original Pokemon Red and Blue games called Cinnabar Island where the Fire-type gym is, probably in reference to Cinnabar's fire-red color. But it's from that reference to Cinnabar, the mineral, not the Pokemon Island, that we get this tree's scientific name, Dracaena cinnabari. The genus Dracaena, on the other hand, comes from the Latin word for dragon, in reference to the tree's mythological origins. There's over a hundred plant species in the Dracaena genus across the tropical latitudes, but only a handful are trees. So there are more species of dragon tree than just this one, but each species is isolated to its own island, archipelago, or coastal area. I mentioned earlier that this tree was related to the yucca. Both plants belong to the asparagus family. Yes, the vegetable asparagus. This family also includes agave, joshua trees, and hyacinth flowers. Our dragon's blood tree is admittedly distantly related to those more well-known plants within this diverse family. It belongs to a separate subfamily closer connected to other subtropical semi-arid plants that I don't really recognize. Of the various isolated dragon tree species, I've chosen to focus on the one that grows on the island of Socotra. What is this island, and why is this tree species so important? The island of Socotra and its few small neighbors can be found in the Arabian Sea, halfway between Somalia and Yemen. It's where that gulf between Africa and the Arabian Peninsula lets out into the Indian Ocean. Socotra is an incredibly fascinating island full of endemic species. What does that word mean? An endemic species, whether plant or animal or fungus or something else, is a species whose geographic range is limited to a small, isolated area. 37% of the plant species on Socotra grow on that island and nowhere else in the world, including the Socotra dragon tree. These plants are special for more reasons than just their rarity. What grows here is thought to be the last of a dead forest ecosystem that spanned northern Africa and the Arabian Peninsula. A long, long, long time ago, our landmasses were combined into one supercontinent known as Pangaea. 
Pangaea first started to break apart into two smaller supercontinents to the north and south. Laurasia eventually became North America, Europe, and Asia, and Gondwana became South America, Africa, Australia, and Antarctica. This split led to divergent evolutionary paths between our hemispheres, and I go into more detail with that in the Baobab episode. Where Laurasia and Gondwana first split apart, an ocean formed that scientists have named the Tethys Sea. Over time, as continental drift led our landmasses to become more and more as we recognize them today, there always persisted this seaway channel between Africa and Eurasia. Its own shape changed over time, and its later form is referred to as the Neotethys Sea. This seaway was ultimately closed off when the Indian subcontinent broke off from eastern Africa and smashed into southern Asia, forming the Himalayas. All that's left of the Neotethys is the Mediterranean Sea, as well as the Black and Caspian Seas. The closing off of this seaway drastically affected the local climate. When the Neotethys existed, it is believed that the flora of North Africa and Arabia was lush and diverse. But now that it's closed off, those regions are in a cycle of growth and death. It's believed that just 7,000 years ago, the Saharan and Arabian deserts were full of life, either a subtropical forest or a savanna ecosystem. Scientists expect that because of the Earth's changing tilt and proximity to the sun, that these conditions can return, but not for another 13,000 years. We believe that the rare flora found only on the island of Socotra between Africa and Arabia are a bare remnant of whatever lush ecosystem preceded our current desert landscapes. And this thought blows my mind. Time travel is still just a thing of science fiction, but these plants, dragon tree included, give us an otherwise impossible glimpse into the ancient world. Here's the kicker. If this is all that's left of an extinct ecosystem, then it goes without reason that whatever survived is itself dying. The dragon's blood tree itself is listed as vulnerable. According to the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, this species faces a high risk for going extinct in the wild. Maybe you're thinking, what does this matter? It's one tree that grows on a single island that before today... I hadn't heard of. Besides, scientists will tell us that new species are going extinct every week. The Socotran dragon tree is special for a couple reasons. Number one, it is known as an umbrella species. I hinted at this earlier when I mentioned the lizard pollinators that live in a bush that grow near the dragon trees. Species in the wild interact with each other like strands on a web. In some cases, losing a single strand is not going to greatly affect the overall structure of the web but some strands are integral to that overall structure, and losing it will lead to overall ecosystem degradation. Species that rely on this umbrella organism face greater threats of extinction without them. But you may still think that this is quite a small web that isn't really connected to the wider world for any purpose other than historic novelty. And that's actually why it's so important to care about this. There are, of course, hugely important umbrella species in bigger ecosystems that more directly affect human society. What we have with the dragon tree is a small-scale issue that serves as a training ground to teach us how to better care for our bigger problems. Saving this tree and this ecosystem puts us on the path for saving more. On top of all that, the dragon's blood tree is referred to as something else an indicator species. Are you familiar with the concept of taking a canary into a coal mine? In the first half of the 20th century, British miners would bring caged birds into coal mines with them. 
Canaries were more sensitive to harmful gases like carbon monoxide, and if there was a leak, the bird would react to it before humans would notice it themselves, giving them time to address the issue before it became hazardous for them. Indicator species provide this same service for us. The dragon tree specifically is sensitive to changes in climate and react by growing in different shapes. More random and sloppy than the clean semicircles I described at the beginning of this episode. This tree is telling us that things are changing, and now is our time to do something about it. Specifically in regards to Socotra, this island is used to seeing regular monsoon seasons. But in recent years, the climate has gotten drier, monsoons becoming weaker and less frequent, and ultimately making the island a less habitable place for this specific ecosystem. At our current rate of change, the dragon's blood tree is expected to lose half of its current habitat by 2080, as if the island wasn't already a small enough space. So what do we as humans do about this? Right now, we can't do much. There's political issues blocking our path forward, specifically conflicts surrounding a secessional movement in Yemen, with claims over this island being disputed. It's a big mess that I won't get into, but the Yemen government, rebel factions, the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, and the US are all involved to some extent. The issue is that effective environmental regulations generally require government regulations. That's a fact that a lot of folks, especially in America, aren't a fan of. But as long as we as humans disagree on whether or not the planet that gives us life is worth taking care of, the powers that be need to step in and do what they can to stop us from ending our species faster. That's a lot harder to do when there's political instability floating around. So I know this is poor form of me to try and make you care about something that you can't do anything about, but no, there's no good solution right now. If we were to be able to do something, the ideal plan would be focusing on land protection and regeneration. The locals love the tree. They revere it for its strange features and what it provides for them. The problem is that they don't like the lizards, which I've stated is likely to be a primary pollinator and key for this species' reproduction. Everyone cries about not being able to use their land the way they want to until the way they use the land destroys the things you love most about it. On top of that, biological surveys have shown that too much of the dragon's tree population is mature, meaning new plants aren't growing and replenishment is slowing down. But we can research why the species is having trouble establishing seedlings and use our science and technologies to aid in its recovery. We have solutions, it's just a matter of being able to implement them. According to my public speaking professor in college, this is the part where I beseech you with a call to action, a means by which you, the listener, can help solve the problems I've presented. But this issue is so niche, so far away and removed from our daily lives. But just how Socotra is a training ground for saving umbrella species of large ecosystems, it also exists as inspiration for any conservation issue. Because there are so many, and we can't each of us solve them all, but we can at least look at the ones that are closest to us, problems that can be addressed by our own choices, like our resource consumption, corporations we support based on their impacts, where we get our food and what we eat, and who leads our governments when environmental policy needs to be discussed. This tree is so cool. Seriously, go online and find pictures of it. I want to keep living in a world alongside stuff like this. Like the issues facing the dragon's blood tree, the task of conservation seems daunting. But there are solutions. This topic is always a hard one, both to talk about and to hear, because it's pretty depressing. I try to show that there's hope, though. 
I'm someone who believes there always is. Ignore it if you want, but remember the dragon's blood tree, because it is so cool. I'll be back with another episode in two weeks. On August 10th, I'll be talking about the next Celtic Oum calendar tree, the hazelnut, and telling some really fun stories about one of Ireland's biggest folk heroes. See you then. I want to thank all of you for listening to this podcast. If you have the time, leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help us grow. The music is by Academy Garden. You can find more of their stuff on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, Bandcamp. Wherever good music exists, they are there. My cover art is by Brittany Burnett. Find her incredible photography on Instagram at BoomerangBrit. Find me on Twitter and Facebook at My Favorite Trees and get updates on future episodes and extra goodies. If you'd like to thank me back, you can do so by donating to your favorite sustainable organization, some of which are listed on my website, mftpodcast.com. Now, go find a tree that you love and give it a hug.